I'll join me in standing as we come to now read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles, I hope you have one, to the book of Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 930. And our text is going to stretch well into almost the end of chapter 21, as I want to take us basically through verse 36 this morning. But what I want to do to get us started is just read through verse 14, because it's really in many ways that's the main part of the chapter that we will think about together this morning. So let me read that for us and then pray for our time and and then we'll begin together. So uh, listen once again as God does speak to you through his perfect word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came to a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board to the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre and arrived at Ptolemais, We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And commanding to us, coming, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And said, let the will of the Lord be done. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we know without your spirit we can do nothing. Without your spirit we cannot hear your truth. Without your spirit we cannot respond with faith and repentance. And so we pray that you would pour your spirit into our very hearts this morning afresh, that we might hear your word that you might raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, that we would hear with earnestness, with hearts of sacrifice, and knowing that we are not promised another sermon, knowing that I'm not preached another, or promised another sermon to preach, Lord, help me to be faithful, and help us to look to your Son, we pray in his precious name. Amen. I think the first album I ever owned of music was titled Jesus Freak. It was such a smashing success that one of the largest Christian publishers in the world came to that band later on and said they wanted to publish a, publish a book corresponding to the album. And that book eventually came out and was titled Jesus Freaks, Stories of Those Who Stood with Jesus. 
And what it was is little more than a relatively modern addition to a long tradition of how Christians have told church history, have recounted the advance of the gospel in the world as they have shared stories of martyrs, of Jesus freaks. And kids, I hope you know what a martyr is. Uh, A martyr is nothing more than a person that has died for their faith in Jesus Christ. So much of the early church's history is one that is told about the stories of martyr after martyr suffering and dying for the cause of Christ and the advance in his kingdom. One such martyr was a man named Ignatius of Antioch. He was well-known and influential in the early church. We actually don't know much more about Ignatius than later on in his life. He, he was imprisoned by Rome, the Roman Empire, for his faith in Jesus. He was bound in chains, and he began this march under the imperial guard from where he was to Rome. And along the way, as he was shackled to the Roman soldiers, he would stop at churches. He would speak with Christians in particular towns. And it was along the way that he began to write letters to churches. Uh, some letters were to the Magnesians, the Ephesians. Other, another one was to the Philadelphians. And he wrote one near the end to the Romans. And it was in that letter to the Romans that Ignatius uh, began to speak about his goal in life. So students, if you were to ask Ignatius at that time in his ministry, what is your deepest desire in your service for Jesus Christ? Well, he wrote to the Romans this, I'm writing to all the churches and insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will. This is the goal unless you hinder me. So he's writing to these Roman Christians that are evidently in some way, shape, or form there in the city of Rome, trying to make it to where Ignatius doesn't have to die for his faith. And what he goes on to say is, I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. Let me be food for the wild beasts. His deepest desire was to be reckoned worthy to reach the goal of martyrdom for Ignatius He must die for Jesus. And it's something of a heartbeat that we are going to see in our passage today with the Apostle Paul. As he's set his gaze upon the holy city of Zion, he's going to Jerusalem. And we know from last week's text that the Holy Spirit had testified to his own heart that it was there that he must go to Jerusalem, but there he was going to face tribulations. There he was going to face even imprisonment. Because we left off last week with Paul saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. He was in haste, the text had told us, to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so he had set sail past Ephesus, not stopping in to visit with this church that he had planted. But he had called these elders of the Ephesian church to come meet him at Miletus. And he said, I'm not going to ever see you again. You're, you're never going to talk with me again. Uh, So what he gave them there at the end was what we talked about as this kind of pattern, this model for faithful ministry in ordinary local churches, Uh, a model of ministry that in every way does hinge on distinguished leaders uh, making all the difference. And we said what what Paul was putting before the Ephesian elders and us were, were five things, at least, that the church needs from her leaders, one, that they would be humble men, two, that they would be gospel men, that be watchful, hopeful, and, and sacrificial leaders. And we're going to pick up the story today as Paul finally gets to Jerusalem. And what I want to do before we get into chapter 21 is ask a simple question, students, that you should often ask of texts like this. When the Apostle Paul says, I must get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, 
Well, the text is causing us to ask the question of why, Paul? Why are you so zealous to get to Jerusalem? And it's actually a good question to ask because the book of Acts doesn't ever tell us why Paul was so eager to get to Jerusalem. But Paul's letters tell us why he was so eager to get to Jerusalem. You can find it in the letter to the Philippians. You can find it in the letter to the Corinthians. Or you can find it in the letter to the Romans. So Paul, why are you so eager to get to Jerusalem? A place where you know you're going to face persecution. You know you might be imprisoned and yet you still want to get there. Well, what's so important, Paul, in Jerusalem? Here's what he tells the Romans. Chapter 15, verse 25 through 27 of that letter, he says, At present, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, he says. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... I mean, of of salvation and and hope in Jesus Christ. Surely they must be of service to them in material blessings. So that Paul is going to Jerusalem, expecting that he's going to face persecution and perhaps even death. Well, that's not too terribly surprising for us as we have spent many months in this book of Acts. It seems like any place Paul goes, he's preaching the gospel, he's planting churches, and it stirs up a riot that drives him out of the city and finds him beaten nearly on the point of death on occasion. Uh, But here, what might be more surprising, the Apostle Paul is eager to get to Jerusalem, knowing he might die there, But he's not eager to get there in order that he might offer the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's eager to get there that he might offer money to poor saints of Jesus Christ. He's not so zealous to get there that he might share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that he might share in the aid of poor saints in Jerusalem. I dare say for many in our context today, that kind of zeal to extend money to poor people, poor saints in the Lord, might be somewhat surprising, might be even quite challenging and convicting, and certainly it points us to the theme that I want to bring forth from our chapter today. Uh, I want you to see the costly obedience required in following Jesus Christ. There is a radical, risky, costly obedience that followers of Jesus Christ must embody. And so you're going to want to see as we look through this passage, the the way in which Paul, even in his own very life, is seemingly filling up the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And and truly you want to ask uh, questions even of your own heart along the way is, is how am I living with costly obedience? Uh, We no doubt live in a time and context where, where costly obedience is perhaps not nearly as common in our midst as it should be. Uh, recognize that even our own self-deception and perhaps even pride would uh, want us to think and even argue that. Look at all the ways in which we have counted the cost for following Jesus Christ. But maybe if the Spirit convicts us accordingly today, we would realize much of our life here has been little more than just comfort and cherishing of security lest we lose something for the Savior. So I want you to see something about Paul's willingness along the way. Uh, Two simple headings to guide our our way today. I want you to see willing to suffer for Jesus Christ in Paul's life. And then we're going to see, even less time at the end we'll devote to it though, is willing to submit for Jesus Christ. So willing to suffer and willing to submit. Uh, Willing to suffer is the first part of the passage through verse 16. You'll notice in the first few verses of chapter 21, 
as Luke is prone to do in this narrative, he just rapidly moves Paul and his associates from one city to the next, saying, well, they stop here, they stop there, they move there, they end up here. And uh, what's important for us today is to notice what happens at the end of verse 4 after they've stayed a week there in Tyre. Or I'm sorry, yes, a week along in Tyre. Look at the end of verse 4. Through the Spirit, these disciples were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's the first echo of warning in this passage. It's going to show up again. Paul, don't go to where you're so desperate to go. Well, eventually, you'll notice he gets to the city of Caesarea in verse 8. And notice whom he greets there in that wonderful city. He entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So Caesarea in the ancient world, it was this majestic port city that was built by Herod the Great. It was meant to serve the city of Jerusalem. And it's there that 20 years have passed by, really, between when we last saw Philip in the narrative of Acts, and he shows up here in chapter 21. Because he last showed up, kids, you might remember, in Acts chapter 8. It was there because of persecution in Jerusalem... The Lord Jesus was expelling his church out into the far reaches of the known world at the time. And and Philip was an evangelist, particularly to the city and area of Samaria. He was preaching the gospel. We were told in Acts chapter 8 that everyone was listening intently, that many people were being saved, many people were being baptized. You might even recall this wonderful story of the Spirit, as it were, kind of just lifting up Philip by the scruff of his neck that he might go preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. And the text says at the end of chapter 8, after he was preaching and teaching in all the towns, he ended up in in Caesarea. So he's Philip the evangelist. But again, verse 8 calls him what? One of the seven so students, do you remember who the seven were in the book of Acts? Well, that's further back, Acts chapter 6. You might remember these widows who were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, and the apostles appointed seven men uh, who were something like prototype deacons, that they were going to minister to the needs of the Greek-speaking widows. And one of those seven was Philip. Now, do you remember who probably is the most famous of the seven? This man named Stephen who in the next chapter, Acts chapter 7, this deacon who was a powerful preacher who knew the Lord with such intimacy, well, he's stoned for his faith, and Stephen becomes what? The first martyr for Jesus Christ. And what does the end of chapter 7 tell us? But none other than the apostle Paul is standing there over the execution of Philip's friend, holding the coats of those that were doing the stoning, in order that their rock-throwing ability would be altogether accurate, that they might beat him into a bloody pulp. This is what Philip's first encounter with Paul was like. Twenty years passed by. I wouldn't want to know, wouldn't you want to know, if, if Paul was stepping over the threshold into Philip's house, the sense of emotion in Philip's heart there. Twenty years, as many of you know, is a very long time. Many things can pass in twenty years. Certainly, some of you know, 20 years is no time at all uh, for some things to pass. Uh, Here is the man whose persecution drove Philip out of his hometown. Here's the man whose persecution killed Philip's close friend. And yet, what's Philip doing in verse 8? But with hospitality in the gospel, welcoming Paul the apostle. Surely, in some ways, it's meant for us to see how faith in Jesus Christ, it really does turn enemies into friends, those that used to stand against each other now enjoy fellowship 
even table fellowship with one another. Interestingly, though, notice what we're told in verse 9. Luke pointedly singles out Philip's daughters, saying they're unmarried and that they prophesy. That might seem a little bit of an odd addition to Luke's account here in Acts. If you didn't recognize that part of what Acts is trying to do in a subtle way, but certainly a clear way from the beginning of the book, is remind its early hearers that in the outpouring of the Spirit and the ascension of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ to his Father's right hand in heaven, what has dawned upon the world is the last days. Uh, Because you might remember all the way back in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching this great sermon at Pentecost, this first sermon of the new covenant. And he's saying, as as the people there are hearing all of these speaking in tongues going about, he's saying that this long-expected promise from Joel chapter 2, verse 28, is now fulfilled. A promise that I think in a subtle way Luke is reiterating has been fulfilled already, as it's a promise in Joel chapter 2, says, in those last days the Lord will pour out his spirit from on high and who's going to prophesy but your sons and your daughters. And significantly, the text isn't really concerned with what the daughters say. It's concerned with what this man named Agabus says. Notice verse 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. And he commanded us, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So kids, what you need to see there with Agabus is a rather strange scene in what he was speaking. Uh, The importance of what he's saying there isn't just merely the declaration of what's going to happen to Paul, but it's a demonstration, isn't it, of what's going to happen to Paul. Uh, You need to see Agabus is standing in this long line of prophets who ministered in dramatic ways the truth of the Lord. Uh, you might think about this man named Ahijah, who tore his garment dramatically before the people of Israel, saying in the same way the Lord was going to tear apart the United Kingdom of Israel. Or some of you in your uh, Bible reading plan throughout the year have uh, come upon this uh, rather odd scene in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is found to be the first streaker in the Old Testament, commanded by the Lord, as the Lord says, you're to run naked throughout the streets. And in your nakedness and humiliation, you're supposed to embody the nakedness and humiliation of judgment that I'm getting ready to bring upon Egypt. The prophet Ezekiel, he was commanded by the Lord, among many things that he was supposed to demonstrate. He built this miniature little Jerusalem. It was invite people to come and see this miniature Jerusalem and and show them through this miniature Jerusalem uh, the judgment that was going to fall, the wrath that was going to fall on God's people for their idolatry and unrepentance. And here's Ahijah. Can you imagine the scene that would have been played out before Paul, perhaps Philip and his daughters there as well, He takes Paul's belt, the sash off his waist that would have been quite long. And in quite gymnastic fashion, he's tying up his feet. He's tying up his legs. Surely with great blood earnestness, he's saying, this is going to happen to the man who owns this belt by the Jews at Jerusalem. So you can understand, can't you? Verse 12, when we heard this, Luke says, we and the people there urged him not to go up. To Jerusalem. One of the most well-known martyrs of the early church was a man named Polycarp. And he actually trained many, 
men and women that actually became martyrs, uh, one of whom has been largely lost to history, although in the early centuries of the church, the name of Germanicus was well known. He was one of Polycarp's students there at Smyrna, and somewhere along the way, early in his life, we know he was a youth, we don't know how young he was, but he was clearly young according to the historical record. He was taken captive for his faith in Jesus Christ, and, and one day at the Smyrna Public Games, think a Colosseum-like setting, he was dragged out before the audience. Uh, the record tells us that a wild beast was thrown in there, and in all likelihood it was a lion. And the Roman uh, proconsul of the city began to cry out to Germanicus to renounce his faith, especially in view of how young he was. He was simply saying something like you might hear today of, consider all of the life that you have ahead of you. Just renounce your faith and you'll be pardoned. And what the story says is Germanicus said, no, I won't. And he reached out with urgency for the beast to do its duty. Such was his zeal to die for Jesus Christ. And you see that even Paul himself, as it were, in the next part of our text, he reaches out for the beast that has now been promised, this promised persecution. Look at verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's certainly possible, isn't it, that perhaps unwittingly, sincerely, and even understandably, we in our zeal for a brother or sister in Christ might have talked them out of costly obedience or tried to talk them out of costly obedience that the Lord demanded. Uh, and you can see here, Paul, his zeal for Jesus Christ. I must get to Jerusalem. I must bring this aid, and I don't care if death or persecution awaits. It is my calling to get there. The costly obedience is required in following Jesus Christ, and so I would want to ask you, what was the last thing you laid aside for the name of Jesus Christ? You know in our context, don't you, uh, that intimidation might be rising in America, but persecution in this sense of potential martyrdom, that's not even close to our experience. And I hope you know you have some brothers and sisters in this church that know what that's like. But there's a cost required. Perhaps it's even the cost of a vocation that might take you away from the church of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's this costly obedience with everything the Lord has entrusted to you that you might shower upon his church generosity. Maybe it's the cost of a relationship. Uh, maybe it's the cost of former loves that you gladly lay aside for the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. You know, costly obedience is required. And I want you to see in the next part of our passage, it's back half, how he's also willing to submit for Jesus Christ. Because notice verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, Luke says, the brothers received us gladly. As best we can tell, according to the narrative of Acts, this is the first time Paul has been in Jerusalem in the last eight years of his life. The last time he was there was in Acts chapter 15 with the great Jerusalem council, uh, which you might remember was this, this major meeting of the early church to settle a gospel issue. And Paul's appearance there in Jerusalem calls for another council. Uh, you might even think about it as something like this almost uh, summit-like experience, unlike anything the early church had ever seen before or since, where you have James, the leader in Jerusalem, 
So James is God's appointed servant taking the gospel to the Jews and now holding conference with Paul, God's appointed servant to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And what it begins with is nothing more than something like a missionary report from Paul because look at what we're told in verse 18 and 19. The following day, Paul went in with us to meet with James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And you see in verse 20, they glorified God in the missionary report. And we don't know precisely how many minutes later, after expressing gratitude, after glorifying the Lord, but it seems as though the leaders there in Jerusalem, you know, they kind of sidle up to Paul and they say, Brother, we've been hearing reports about you. It's not unlike what church leaders often hear in our time and context from church members. You know, many people have been saying... And whenever that phrase is uttered, you don't expect anything good to come after it. You know, many people have been saying, Paul, what have they been saying? Look at verse 20 through 21. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to to our customs. I've always wondered, uh, when Paul would have heard that report there, as it were, at the Jerusalem Presbytery, you know, we've been hearing things about you, Brother Paul, and as he hears what they had been hearing, you would probably expect that Paul would almost look at them with some sense of confusion. You've been hearing what? Because if you know anything about Paul's life and ministry to this point, and even his letters, you know that nothing that they have just said is actually true at all of Paul's ministry. Because what we've seen already in Acts, Acts chapter 16, what did he do with Timothy when they went about their early missionary journey? He required that Timothy be circumcised. We'll speak about that more in a second. Acts chapter 18, what does he do? He puts himself under a Nazarite vow. He's following, even in his own Jewish life, ordinary customs from the Torah. He has told even others along the way that they might need to follow this part of Judaism. They might not need to follow this part of Judaism. We know even recently from last chapter, he's in zealous desire to get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to get to that time of Pentecost. It would actually be quite true that Paul was a law keeping Jew who had believed in Jesus Christ at this time. So uh, this accusation against Paul certainly would have uh, not hit any degree of truthfulness in his own life and ministry. And in in a rather ironic way, the first trial uh, that Paul endures there at Jerusalem doesn't come from outside the church. It comes from those inside the church. That so often God's people can be misrepresented. And what's altogether tragic, isn't it? So often God's people are misrepresented by church members. And that's exactly what's happening here with Paul. But James proposes a solution to this problem. Uh, You'll see what he says in verse 22 through 24. What's then to be done? Well, they'll certainly hear that you've come here, so do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So as best we can tell, this is something like a Nazarite vow that's meant to last for just about a week in Paul's life. And it's here that many 
preachers, understandably, and even scholars will wonder, what do we make about this Jerusalem assembly's demand and proposal to Paul? This apparent accommodation to others in the church, that's just a little more than seemingly just pleasing man in order to just kind of deal with their concerns and cast them aside. Uh, isn't he compromising in some way? The gospel of Jesus Christ that we know says, you don't have to do any of this stuff. Well, it's important to see that on the next day, Paul just went ahead and did it. And it's important to know that many people throughout the ages have thought Paul did something wrong here in going about this Nazarite vow. Uh, but what you need to know is what's clear in Paul's writing is that he wasn't in any way confused about the situation there at Jerusalem, nor is he in any way compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ, because what many people have maybe perhaps understood to be matters of theology here with these Jerusalem leaders, it's more in Paul's mind a matter of missiology. What do I mean? Well, think about the theology he's given to us in his letters, uh, Paul's writings. What was his theology that he writes to the Galatians regarding the law? That Christ has redeemed us from what? A curse of the law. By coming a curse for us as it is written, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. Did he not also write to the Philippians that those by faith in Jesus Christ are the true circumcision? We who worship in the spirit and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and have put no confidence in the flesh. Did he not also tell the Romans that circumcision counts for nothing? nor uncircumcision for anything. So this wasn't a matter of theology. It was much more of a matter of missiology. He's already told the Romans in Romans chapter 9. Uh, he, he had told them that he was so zealous for Jews to be converted. If you know that story, what is he willing to do? He's willing to be cut off and accursed that his brethren might know the Lord. What do you tell the Corinthians in chapter 9 verse 20? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. What's Paul doing here? He's willing to submit for Jesus Christ. What Paul is willing to do is lay down his liberties that others might know the truth of salvation found in Jesus Christ. Perhaps maybe in our context, that's where much of the costly obedience comes laying down liberties and so that others might know the Lord Jesus. Sometimes, of course, that means you dress in a certain way. Sometimes that means you don't dress in a certain way. Sometimes it means you go in. Sometimes that means you come out. Sometimes it means that you stay. Sometimes that means you leave. I, I think there's great benefit, don't you, even perhaps later today that you might be able to talk with a friend or family member. What, what liberties do we have in Jesus Christ that we might gladly and sacrificially set aside for the cause of our great Lord. Well, you see, he's going for this week about the rites of purity and the Nazarite vow. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, that being Paul, of course, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. So here it is, you know, the promised persecution has truly come. And it's altogether full of irony. Notice verse uh, 28, as it follows, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. You see, in the following verses, they drag him out 
They begin to beat him, intent to kill him until uh, Roman soldiers jump in and save Paul. Not exactly sure what's going on, but they want to get the riot off their hands. And we'll return to that part, uh, Lord willing, next week. But here in an altogether ironic scene, what you see is the close of the temple in the book of Acts. Here is a temple that was dedicated for purification. Here's where Paul was in the temple, purifying himself, all the while undergoing desecration and defamation of his reputation. Here's a temple where people were meant to come and know something of the glory of the Lord. Now in casting out Paul, they've shown the degree to which their hearts are closed to the glory of the Lord. Perhaps it's for no small reason then that Acts, as it continues, doesn't ever mention the temple again. That's even in just 12 years' time, as best we can tell, the temple is soon going to be destroyed and hasn't been rebuilt. There's a costly obedience required in following Jesus Christ. Uh, one well-known preacher in the 20th century who knew this was a man named James Montgomery Boyce. I know uh, a number of you would know that name, this famous preacher from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In 1986, uh, he published a book that was called Christ's Call to Discipleship. And he wrote this, quote, There is a defect, even a fatal defect, in the life of the church in the 20th century. A lack of true discipleship in some circles, at least. There's very little genuine Christianity. Many fervently call him Lord, Lord, who are not actually Christians. And years later... Uh, when he was nearing the end of his ministry, he would actually die quite early due to a bout with cancer. He was asked to evaluate that statement or sentences that he had written in Christ's call to discipleship. Uh, has he changed his view? Did you change your view at all, uh, Pastor Boyce? And he said, no. The situation is not better today. In fact, it's probably worse. What's the problem? We do not like this kind of teaching. Prosperity, yes. Victory, yes. Suffering, Death, the cross, well, we don't like these things. And then he said, there's no genuine Christianity without them. The Apostle Paul knew that, didn't he? To follow Jesus Christ and be faithful to the commission the Spirit had given him meant costly obedience was necessary. And I do trust that you can even remember the Lord Jesus and his word to you, that if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. There is genuinely an expectation of every single person who will enter in the kingdom of God. Costly obedience will come. So I want you to see briefly as we begin to come to the end today uh, about two more summary-like things we need to see at the end of our passage. The first is I, I want to I tell you that the power of divine constraint the power of divine constraint. And to see that, you actually have to flip back to last week's passage. Look at chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. Paul there is telling the Ephesian elders, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, why is it that Paul can face down all of the promised persecution, and seemingly with eagerness go into, as it were, the lion's den. Well, he's under the power, isn't he, of divine constraint. Where will costly obedience be shown in your life, if but not for the power of what? Divine constraint. 
I'm sure that none of you sitting here today under this spiritual calling, this divine constraint to go pursue a martyr's life. But there are all kinds of reasons, aren't there, to live this week with divine constraint. To love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With divine constraint to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Under divine constraint, striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Divine constraint to take up your cross today, tomorrow, and each day and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you may have to lay aside for that. So you need to see the power of divine constraint. And that should convict you, I think, along the way today. But there's comfort to be found in the second and final thing, which is the commitment of Jesus Christ. There's something of a striking echo, isn't there, here in Paul's life of even our own Savior's model. Uh, Because what you have here is the Apostle Paul as Christ's servant with his face set on Jerusalem. Don't you remember that even in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, that his face was set like flint, Luke 9 verse 51 says, to get to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to die. Where even he had disciples trying to discourage him from going. You remember when he told his 12 what was coming, uh, what happens. Uh, But Peter says, no, this isn't going to happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I must get there. And he must get there in order to die for people like you and me that perhaps have idols of comfort and security in the world. That means we dare not follow Jesus Christ in costly obedience. That he might spill and pour forth his precious blood there as he ascends to Mount Zion. He's truly interested in ascending to the Mount of Calvary. Or there because of costly obedience. What does he do but lay down his life? For people that are so often too cowardly, not willing to lay down anything for the Lord. So see the power of divine constraint and let the Spirit convict you, even this week. But know the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and his commitment that you might find fresh courage this week, that you too might be found a faithful servant of the Lord, willing to do anything, to endure anything, as Paul said, for the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that your spirit would convict us of the ways in which we have not been costly in our obedience. That we would be found faithful, that we would be found willing, that we would be found to lay aside anything that hinders our life in Jesus Christ and its commitment and its zeal and its fullness. Lord, let us know something about this apostolic zeal that Paul had. Be faithful to the constraint placed upon him by the Spirit that we might know the same. We might even look to Jesus Christ and his costly obedience this day, finding fresh courage in it, fresh comfort in it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.